This is no small part. No small part. No small part. This is no small parts. I am Brittany Brewer. I almost like I wanted to ask you what you were drinking, but I wasn't sure if you were. And then I was like, it's okay if you aren't drinking. It it looks like Windex. So he's not going to ask me what I'm drinking because it looks like Windex and she's concerned for me. This is Ange Bay. Okay. What are you drinking though? It's blue. It's blue. Okay. So I'm drinking gin and then also blue sir, sir, sir. Sir, what is it? Sir, I something. I have read Sir that Cow? word. Sir Ca- yes. Okay. Like C U R A Q U O. I don't. Yes. They are a black queer storyteller from Southwest Philadelphia. I spent ten minutes before this call listening to that <laughs> word being said on YouTube because I was like, oh man, like Brittany's gonna ask me to, to pronounce this, and I it was a huge thing. I was like, what am I gonna drink? And I was pouring the blue thing bef- into the cup before I even realized that I would have to pronounce it on air. It's <laughs> like, I can't go back. Alcohol is a shortage right now. I can't. <laughs> Strong so, mood. <laughs> I would definitely like also have major anxiety if I was like, oh shoot, why did I pour this? I haven't said this word ever. Right? On today's episode of No Small Parts, Ange talks about creating opportunities, the importance of balance and boundaries, and finding their community of art makers. Cheers. But yes, I'm drinking Windex for all the people out there. Don't drink Windex. Don't do that. God, what a topical thing to say. Oh no. Don't drink disinfectant. <laughs> Your gin drink sounds good. It is it is very good. It's a little orangey. And then you get the juniper from the gin. It is precisely the old man drink that I wanted. So. Oh, tropical. Yes. What are you drinking? I'm drinking a mint julep. Nice. So like some whiskey and syrup and mint vibes. That's very nice. My drink of choice would be a mojito, but I don't have those things. That's my favorite drink of all time, is a mojito. It's such a good drink. With gin. Yes, with gin. Ah, <sighs> oh, gin mint. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. Yeah, totally. Totally. This is really cool, and I think it's a great idea, and I'm really excited that you want to talk to me about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's like no question to me because you just you're doing a lot of everything and I think that's so interesting and I think that's exactly what a lot of us land in doing mm-hmm. accidentally mm-hmm. after everything but you did a little bit sooner even which I think is like so <laughs> impressive and fantastic thank you thank you yeah I think that like um it's really important to to learn how to like sustain yourself as an artist and I'm glad I learned that lesson really early on. Um, but still, like, it, it's, I'm sure that you feel this way as well. It can be really overwhelming, juggling a billion different hats. Um, and sometimes I wish I could just, like, sit down and specialize in something for a little while and mm-hmm. then know there's, like, job security is the biggest thing for me. Or, like, the kinds of work that I want to work on will be there. Um, you know. And that's just, like, such a huge question, I think, um, about 
being a young, a general young artist. How much do I want stability? Or what are the things that are going to feel the best for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because for a lot of us too, we're like simultaneously learning how to be like real adults, like in quotes, for the first time. Like for those of us that went to college, it could feel like summer camp. It's like a home away from home that tricks you into thinking you're more independent than you actually are. Oh yeah. And then you go into the real world, and college is wonderful, but um, but then you go into the real world, and then suddenly it's like you can't be on your parents' taxes anymore. And oh, guess what? File your own. Oh, guess what? You want to get out of your hometown? You better go find an apartment somewhere. Or and like all these things are coming at you all at once. Um, yeah, and and especially for artists, like we're already very sensitive, uh, and can get like lost in the shuffle of like just learning how to live, uh, and then realizing like, oh no, like I want to be able to work in the field that my degree says I should be able to work in. Exactly. And, yeah, it's it's a, there's a lot to juggle, definitely. My program, I definitely I got a BA in theater, and it still was so like acting heavy in terms of how to like market yourself, like being a one person mm-hmm. business. But it's it wasn't even like specific enough to get into like the financial, really the financial component yeah. of what it takes to be an artist. Like you get a lot of training that says, get a headshot, get a resume. Um, this is how you walk into an audition as an actor. And this is how you are prepared. This is what you're supposed to have in your book and you know, in your repertoire. But there's never like, you need to make a website and you need to make sure that you can afford the yearly subscription to your website and you need to make sure that you have a URL, which is like a whole nother aspect, financial component to like being an actor and, and it's just being a theater artist in general. And there's not a lot of, at least my program didn't have a lot of um, opportunities that were like really built in the curriculum to self-produce work. And so you saw a lot of students like taking independent projects or um, doing what I did, was like, a, which was like a combo of independent projects at the school, and then also doing lots of internships in the city, and sort of learning, um, you know, what boundaries do and do not exist, and can and cannot exist as a young artist, just trying to get your foot in the door, um, which is really a shame. And I'm not in like, I think my program um, was good for me in like very specific ways, but. I think it's a failure of like theater education in general. There's so many people that like graduate with theater degrees, whether they're BFAs or BAs, and sort of are like running around with chickens, like with their heads cut off, because like you you don't have there's no practical tool really that yes. we learn in school that to, can prepare us for what's out there in the world. Um, and you know, I think academia is important, um, but there are also artists that go the alternate route of like not going to school and not going to conservatories and the more I think about my friends that have done that they're in very similar positions to where I am with a whole ass you know knowledge of Brechtel Brecht and all these people that I have the right papers on Uh, but at the end of the day like a casting director is not going to be looking at your seeing what your senior thesis was you know or like what your dissertation was I mean depending on what what you're going in for maybe like oh yeah i'm going in for a professor on ncis or some shit like oh yeah i can pronounce all these words correctly but but yeah like it's like 
theater is like the great equalizer in a lot of ways, um, like career-wise, as an actor, I can say. As producers, like it really helps if you were born into money and if you know people with money. Oh yeah. And if you are good at talking about money and marketing yourselves, like that's that's a whole other thing that we'll get into, I, I'm sure. But oh yeah, for actors, it, it really is like it, it, it really is like a mixed bag as to like what your career can look like right after you graduate high school or get your GED, and like route route you can take, which is wonderful and scary and confusing and frustrating and wonderful and frustrating and, and like all of it, you know. So. Tell me, what was your original start in theater? Because I know you the most personally as a. Did you come in as an actor? Ah, uh, no. As a writer? Yeah, I mean, like,、uh, I'm, I'm still so young, so it's so weird to talk about my life from like the beginning. <laughs> it was literally only 22 years ago I was born. But really, like, I have to thank my mom and my dad for like, giving me the opportunity to explore my creative. Um, side very young, so it really did start in elementary school. Where I went to a, my local elementary school was a crier. I was a crier of a kid, and、um, I did a lot of poetry and a lot of like macaroni art. You know, it's elementary school, so no、yeah. one's taking yourself serious. I'm certainly <laughs> taking myself seriously, but I had a teacher named、uh, Miss D.W.、Um, And she told my parents to take me out of that school immediately and put me in a performing arts school.、Um, and they did that. They did that. And、uh, at first, I didn't get in. And my parents like put together a portfolio、uh, oh. of my macaroni art and my poetry、ah. uh, and got me into this performing arts school called Philadelphia Performing Arts Charter School. And I stayed there、um, all through middle school and、um, kept writing, kept writing, but. Majored in vocal music, actually at that school, and so did musicals,、uh, professional musicals. My school was a good funnel for people that were coming in on tour from like Broadway and other big like regional theater companies around the United States. They would come to Philly and usually perform at like the Kimmel Center or the Academy of Music, and they would go to our school first,、um, probably because the CEO of the charter school had a bunch of connections and is well off and all of it. But it was really great. For me and my fellow、um, classmates, because we would have like whistle down the wind. The national tour came through,、wow. had us do auditions, and that was the first like huge musical theater thing that I ever did.、Um, and before I like, you know, did the choir, and choir was like, yeah, you're on a stage, you're singing Handel or whatever it is, and that's fun.、Um, maybe you're even singing like All I Want for Christmas is You, and it's funny because you have like a little bit of choreography, but really doing like. Whistle down the wind, and then after that, Oliver.、Uh, I was like, "Whoa, I'm singing in a chorus on stage with like older actors, and they're saying things that sound like spoken word poetry, which is my only touchstone at that point." And like, wow, like I can marry music and theater, and I think I want to be doing more musicals.、Um, and I was also like really seriously dancing ballet at the time because wow, my、cool. school had a. Connection to the Pennsylvania Ballet, so I was there for a while, and I did the Nutcracker every year as a toy soldier. And and very quickly, my mom was like, "You're spreading yourself very thin, like literally and figuratively, because ballet is like a very body-centric field."、Um, I was also trying to get into modeling at the time. I wanted to do like everything,、um, 
And I had a really bad experience at an agency, modeling agency, where they told me I had to be thinner. I was eight, <laughs> in eighth grade. And my mom was like, all right, you could choose modeling or dance. And I said, I don't want to do neither. I want to keep writing and I still want to be on stage. She's like, okay, well, you can still do that. And I was like, yeah, but I don't think I'm a great singer. So maybe <laughs> I don't want to sing anymore. Um, and she's like, okay, well, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, maybe I'll like write plays. Maybe I'll be an actor, like a straight actor. The term straight actor refers to actors whose focus is non-musicals. Straight theater refers to plays that do not use singing or dancing as their primary storytelling tool. It is not clear what the term straight theater or straight actor originated. However, I did learn that opus is the root word for opera and means work which starkly juxtaposes the term for a performative work of drama, a play. I hate that term, but because um, <laughs> yeah. I am nowhere near straight. Uh, but uh, yeah, maybe I'll be a straight actor. And so graduating middle school, going into high school, I entered my first playwriting competition, um, won, and had been writing ever since. And really, like, Philly Young Playwrights was a huge um, step in my in my like career as a writer, like a professional writer, because um, this is how I know you, Brittany, uh, <laughs> which is really weird looking back, but so wonderful, and I'm so glad to have met you. Philadelphia Young Playwrights is an arts education nonprofit that works to partner with educators to bring the transformative power of playwriting into classrooms and community settings across greater Philadelphia. I worked for PYP for about four years, which is where I met Ange. But, uh, Philly Young Playwrights produced a monologue that I um, wrote, and then from there I was just started like submitting my stuff everywhere. I had like a play go up at the National Constitution Center, and I won a couple of things in New York that like for people that were much older than me, like That's weird so awesome. award. Yeah, yeah, and I was just like, you know, I was like 15, 16, going on Google, literally Googling short play competitions and like sending off my stuff. And this was before I had like any filter for criticism or edits. Like I. I, I, was, I wasn't doubting myself at all at that time, especially as a writer, um, because I had PYP and like all my mentors at PYP that told me I had talent. Mm -hmm. um, I had the support of my high school, Friends Select, and my mentor there, Donna Romero, was huge in like pushing me to become an artist as well. So I had a lot of like confidence built up from like older people telling me that I was doing great. So I was just like submitting everywhere. I was like, oh yeah, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. Um, I want to get back to that but now that I... You know, I've developed the angel and the devil on my shoulder in terms of my art making. But um, yeah, I've been writing ever since and then simultaneously acting. Um, I had an opportunity to go to Sundance Director's Lab with a film that just came out, but I'm, I wasn't, I'm not attached to it anymore, but that was like my taste into like real world, like, oh my God, big money, big, big money acting. Like Denzel Washington's son was there, Octavia Spencer was there. And it's like, I am sitting across the table from you and you can pay for my college tuition in like a day on set. And, and it was just ridiculous. But my heart was always in theater. And I remember coming back from Sundance and I had a manager, I did the whole thing. I was, I was like going to New York um, like every weekend, sometimes twice a week wow. while I was in school, like trying to, while I was in um, college, like trying to like juggle being a college student because I was like disenchanted with my theater program for a billion reasons. Mm -hmm. And then, I, and then also like interning a billion places in Philly, putting in my time as people like to romanticize it now that uh, I'm sort of out of that phase. 
and then also trying to go to New York and be famous. Like, it was just ridiculous. Um, but what was always there was writing. Um, and what I always, like, felt was, like, still, like, a very um, genuine part of myself as an artist was writing. And wasn't always plays. It, it was poetry. I always returned back to poetry. Um, and it came a point where I, I dropped my manager and I dropped film acting because it wasn't bringing me any joy. Um, I, I wasn't cast in my, um, in my, my junior year production at my uh, college for like political bureaucratic reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And receives a couple of really messy emails from professors. Uh, and I was like, I can't act anymore. Um, really. And I actually had an audition for Shakespeare in Clark Park during that time. It was like in December and I was in Philly, like on my own because I had taken a semester off to be in Philly on like an exchange program sort of through my school. Um, and I wasn't even going to go to that audition, but I did. And I had asked one of my professors to help me and she was like, no, I'm, I'm busy, sorry. Um, hmm. So I was like feeling really alone, went to yeah. that audition, came back from that audition and just like started writing a play and which became the Medusa play. Um, and then I got that gig, which was a huge surprise. And I found out in like mid-May of that year, uh, or probably sooner. It felt it was a way long time before I found out I got it. Uh, but I was like really excited because I had written a whole play from like December to April or whenever that was. Um, I had found out that I got this role for this show and it would be my first professional show in the city in such a huge part. Like people actually know who I am. And I just sort of been, have ever since I've been like simultaneously doing the acting, writing, and then producing thing. Um, so in college, well, right after that, I went into my senior year of college feeling really good about myself as an art maker again, as a theater artist. And I had decided that like, I knew that my play, the Medusa play would go up my senior year, but I didn't have such a great time developing it. Um, Cause again, like bureaucratic reasons at my school, not really having the kind of support that I needed. And some of that fell on the department. Some of that fell on me just being like the only black student in my department and the yes. only black student to graduate, only theater major to graduate my year. Um, and so I knew that I needed some distance I would need some distance I didn't want to be close to the process at Ursinus unfortunately wait at this point were you still going back and forth to New York nope I okay, cool. yeah I stopped going to New York like right around the time um that I went to the Shakespeare and Clark Park you were balancing so, like, so so much for it was a period of time holy smokes it was yeah it was too much it was way too much and it took a huge toll on my mental health and my relationships with my friends and family and people that I loved um and it's something that, and I want to talk about this a little bit later about like sort of like self-care as an artist, especially yeah. as a young artist and like just being aware of like your, your physical body and mind, and mind and soul. And like, there's no like price that you can put on the amount of work that you do as an artist or the quality of work that you do as an artist. And I think it's, it's hard, especially when we're young to like not say yes to everything you have to like it feels like you have to say yes to everything because everything is a building block or yeah like what happens if you don't and that was the one that got away yeah and then like what happens if you don't and then 
the way that you said don't in the phone call made that one big person go, oh, they're a little off. And, but this is like all like stuff that, and unfortunately we live in, like leaders can be a cult of personality a lot. And so we put like a huge emphasis on how we like perform in front of others. Like not even just as an actor, but like on the day-to-day -day, like networking events. Totally. But, uh, but yeah, I was juggling way too much. Um, and that didn't stop me my senior year and like applying for a grant through my school and ultimately receiving it to produce a play called The White Feather Project, which um, was a docudrama that talked about racism in academia and specifically racism at my institution. And um, I applied for that as an independent artist. It was meant for, you know, faculty members and teams of people to apply for, but I said, I need all this money. Wrote like a 14 page grant application for it. That's awesome. If you're interested in producing a project, always ask questions, always try for the opportunities that feel resonant to you. You are worth it. Um, yeah, I, I, I was really passionate about doing it because I needed a distraction from this Medusa play and I needed to, to, to talk about what I was had been experiencing for four years and I got that money and was able to do it and hire artists from Philadelphia um, and mount it at my college and then also mount it at a Shoebox Short Theater Fest later that year. So that was like my big time um, first producing, managing money, doing budgets, all of that independent study, pseudo like professional um, contract hiring, all of it. I was doing all of it by myself. And um, that's been extremely beneficial to how I produce work and think about work now that I'm out of school. I graduated this past May, just for timeline's sake. Almost a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah whoa. <laughs> Almost didn't make it. I'm glad I did. When did you sort of realize that producing was like an option? Or like making theater on your own was something that was actionable? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, in high school, Donna, who, who I love and and who motivated me a lot and pushed me a lot. She gave me a lot of free reign of the theater department at my high school. And so I was like doing weird productions there, but it, I still hadn't realized that like, oh, I can do this outside of an institution. But I want to credit that as like the first moment of me like going, oh, I can like put all these things together. I can like hire actors. And I was directing my the, the stuff back then I shouldn't have done all of that at once, but I can like direct and I can hire a costume designer. These are my friends, you know? And so like, that was like the first time I could, I thought, okay, like I could like, do all of this on my own. But then like doing White Feather Project, like I think that was definitely like the first time that I thought, yes, I could be a producer with like a capital P. And, um, you know, when I wasn't cast my junior year of college, uh, I thought, well, that sucks. I had faced all that rejection before. I had found out I got dropped from the, the movie that I went to Sundance for. I was going to New York and it was very fruitless. I would get to callbacks and final stages of auditions for like big time productions and film and I would not get it for some wild reason. Um, and I was just facing a lot of rejection and I knew that I didn't want to abandon acting altogether. But I also knew I wanted to create opportunities for people that were feeling the same way as I did. And so December of my junior year, like writing that play, I was like writing very specifically for people 
that look like me and have similar experiences to me. And I knew I wasn't going to act in the play mm -hmm. myself. I was like, this is making space for people that don't get to tell their stories on stage um, as much as like other people do. And then receiving that email in the summer about, hey, you can apply for a grant for a creative project about that diversity. I was like, this is another way that I can action that impulse. So really, um, yeah, I would say, I would say that then was like the, the aha moment. I'm like, God, I should be producing my own work and I am able to do this. Yeah. And did you, before mounting that project in its entirety, were there readings of so, that project or, and or of the Medusa play as well? I know that. Mm -hmm. So the Medusa play was like a long, long, long yeah. um, journey. It started actually with you, Brittany, and Jay Gilman. Jay. Uh, at, yeah, Jay. <laughs> shout out to Jay in Minnesota. Uh, hope you're safe. I, I love you. Um, <laughs> TBT. Um, yeah, it started with you and Jay actually, and I had that idea. I was I was interning at Philly Young Playwrights. I don't know. I was like a sophomore in college or something. I don't. You were like a fresh. I think you're right. I think I was a freshman. And the idea for the play came out of a conversation that a bunch of my friends were having about Greek mythology, like in one of our dining halls. And I remember like coming in the next day to my internship at PYP and Jay was like, Angie, you need to figure out an independent project for this. And I was like, oh, I'll just write a play about Medusa. And then you were hired like the next week or however long it was. <laughs> and then Jay was like, I'm peacing out. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, but don't worry, Brittany's, Brittany's here. Brittany's here to help you. So we were both like learning uh, yeah, like learning how to be independent artists <laughs> at the same time. But I had like, yeah, I had a a very small reading that I was super nervous about, and I was trying to play it cool because you know freshman year of college, I was trying on different personalities. I was like, oh, I can reinvent myself. But I remember like I want to kind of apologize to you actually publicly on this podcast. No, I feel like. I feel like so. So Brittany was tasked with with helping me with do this developmental reading of the Medusa play, and I totally didn't do as much work as I should have because I was uh, I was a college freshman. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But I but you. But I remember you saying like, oh yeah, like I have a friend who does like uh, who who does uh, who's really into Medusa and wants to come to your reading and wants to talk to you. And I was totally like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I have 13 pages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I had a very small reading of it, of, of pieces of it um, at PYP. And but you May reached out to year. folks and you found like actors, even if they were your friends. That's true. I do recall. That's Staged readings can be as low stakes as gathering a group of friends together to hear your words read out loud. Think about what best serves you. What best serves the piece? Yeah, I knew, like looking back, I was very safe. Like, but but I, it was what I needed at that point. Um, so from my freshman year of college, when I had that seedling of an idea, to like junior year of college at that December when I was really feeling down and out about myself, which is like one of the journeys that one of the characters in the play ultimately goes on. Yeah. Um, I I've had like several developmental readings and and like you know, come to my dorm and I'll buy us pizza and we'll read some stuff al aloud and. I really figured out what the story was December of my junior year of college. That's such I mean. a big deal, though. And, like, mm -hmm. I 
I get like the impulse to pick on yourself, sure. <laughs> but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So few people at that age even realize like that's an option, and you're doing this thing. Yeah. You're reaching out to people. Like I definitely didn't really at the school mm-hmm. I went to. I had no idea. That we could. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the fact that you like even what you're talking about now is such a big deal. Reaching out to friends, being like, "Come, like I have food. Will you read mm-hmm. through this?" Like, and having yeah. a goal at the end for yourself as a creator. Yeah. And then also too, like especially as a playwright, and you know the challenges of developing that show in academia was that I was doing it for a grade and. My program was very much like built on like the good play model, and we didn't have like a theater playwriting class. And I thought that was some, one of the things I was promised at my school, but we just never had it because it was like a rotating sort of class cycle. And so I was like really struggling even after December to put the story to page and pen because like I was working through a lot of is this criticism. Because he doesn't like my writing, or they, or she doesn't like my writing, or is this criticism because they don't understand how black hair works, or you know? And so, like, I spent a lot of my time that year, sort of um, trying to like wade through opinions that I didn't necessarily need, but thought I did. And and so the show that went up my senior year was ultimately a very, very different show than the show that I ended up self-producing with my theater company, Shoebox Theater Collective, um, this past fall. And I want to also say that, like, that's okay, too. Like, as an artist, you're allowed to evolve. And I think it's a very, like, capitalistic mindset to think that something is frozen and is a product and you have to abandon it. And that's it. And, like, do your elevator pitch Throw it, at, throw it at a theater company and tell them what this is. And unfortunately, yes, we have many models in place that does support that kind of thinking. But one thing that I love about Shoebox, um, my collective, is that we are a collective of theater artists, like an actual collective. None, no one of us has like one specific role and we're all there to like take risks and experiment and push each other in ways that we all want to be pushed. Um, and so the Medusa play at Ursinus, which was directed by like, a fabulous director that I am very grateful to have had come into my life at that point that I just still have in my life. Her name is Tamania Garza. Um, needed to, so that production needed to be what it needed to be at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then being able to sort of like unshackle myself from academia and rethink about the trajectory of Medi and her friends outside of school. And what I was really trying to say really translated in the production that ended up happening in the fall with this theater company. Um, when you were at Ursinus, um, how was your role different? That's where you were saying you stepped yeah. back sort of as a writer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. how did that, how did everything sort of shift creation-wise when you moved forward to producing it with your collective? What was it like taking it on as like sort of a co-producer? Yeah, um, accountability is what I learned the most. And I was starting to learn that lesson at Ursinus too, but like accountability. Um, at the beginning of my process with Shoebox, I was very much just the playwright. And I sat down with um, our pseudo artistic director. I, I call him my artist, our artistic director because he has been with the company the longest, um, mm-hmm. named Ryan Rebel. And we sat down together and uh, 
he had seen the production at our sinus. He's very close to me. He happens to be my partner. And so we had like a very candid discussion about the play. Um, and he was like, do you want to change it? Like, we think it's great, but do you still, do you wanna, is there anything that you want to change or fix or massage about it? And I was like, yeah, I want to have the opportunity to like write the play that I actually want to write. Like, I'll do that. And so for that summer, I, um, I spent a lot of time like rethinking the play, sort of like breaking it back open and putting it back together. And so in the beginning of that process, I was definitely just the playwright. And I had to hold myself accountable because I knew there was a production that we had to have auditions for. I knew that there had to be like other people. We decided that we would co-direct it together, which was like another huge thing, undertaking that I underestimated at the time. Um, and we were also producing it. I ended up like costume designing because we couldn't find someone last minute. So I was suddenly juggling 104 things. It felt like I was back in school again, which was, was precisely what I did not want to do. And I felt like I was failing, but like, I think it's too that like, you you can imagine what you want your life to look like as an artist and yeah. it won't always happen the way that you expect it to. Um, and that's also okay and just a part of your journey. But um, yeah, accountability, meeting deadlines. And I definitely missed several deadlines mm -hmm. as a playwright, as a director, as a costume designer and like learning in real time, like that affects people. Like I feel like, ac like academia and college, there could be a lot of cushions. Like you have a lot of people that want you to stay in school and don't want you to drop out. And so there's always that push of like, oh, we'll give you an extension or oh, like, um, so-and-so will pick up the work on this end of the project or whatever it is, right? But uh, we knew that we were submitting this production to the Barrymore Awards. The Barrymore Awards is an annual award ceremony produced by Theatre Philadelphia. They aim to recognize and celebrate professional theater in the greater Philadelphia region, though there are requirements that theaters and productions must meet to be Barrymore Award eligible. We knew that, like, this would be a huge thing for Shoebox, and there was a lot riding on the success of this show. And it wasn't the healthiest decision for me to like decide I was going to rewrite the play entirely over the summer, jump into a, a co-directorship with my partner, who is a fabulous artist. But then also I was like working three other jobs and wow, doing yeah. Fringe as an actor. And like <laughs> Ange is referring to the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. Philly Fringe is a month-long festival that lives and breathes across the city, featuring about a thousand performances. Philly Fringe is produced by a local organization in Philadelphia, Fringe Arts. A number of large cities have their own Fringe Festival, and many artists produce theater for the first time as a part of Fringe. It is worth looking into to explore all different sizes and shapes and iterations of theater and what sings to you. Take notes on the moments that feel exciting to you, that stick with you. These might be the starts of your next piece. Or you might be inspired to reach out to a new artist, have a conversation, and potentially find a new collaborator. It was just way too much. It was, it was ludicrous. Like this. So accountability and boundaries, I would add to that too, is what I learned the most, taking that production and remounting it and self-producing it with Shoebox. Thinking back on that point in my life, I don't remember anything. It was all a haze. I had, I kid you not, I had like, 18 hour days. Oh my god. I was jumping from, there was one day I would jump from auditions to work at a, at an after school program where I was taking care of like fifth, sixth and seventh graders to rehearsal, which would be very late sometimes like, 
and at and then like 10 and I was living in German and I'm still living in Germantown but I was taking public transit and at 10 p.m. and commuting and then I would collapse in my bed yeah, at I like bet. 12 a.m. and then start the day again at like 8 a.m. the next day it was ridiculous and no one needs to be doing that that's not healthy I don't I don't recommend 10 out of 10 don't recommend from all the different iterations, no matter how like low key or low stakes they felt of just like producing air quotes or like event planning, as I feel like is the like not theater word for it, like any sort of reading of work, what would you say would be your most memorable experience? Ooh. Yeah. Um, my most memorable experience. I will say that, wow, I'm just thinking about all the collaborators that I've had over the years. And that's, yeah, that's the beauty of producing is that you get to like, you get to make this beautiful mosaic of artists and art. And it's so special because like a huge thing about producing is like asking yourself the question, what can these specific artists in this specific moment in time make together and why? Is that more unique than you know another set of artists in another period of time? Maybe. So you're you're really like capturing rainbows in bottles. It's really beautiful, and so it's really hard for me to think of like my most memorable or my most favorite moment. But I can I can say that every time I've had a workshop of a play that I wrote, or even with the White Feather Project, um, I'll talk about the White Feather Project because that for me was one of the best art making experiences that I've had. And I hired a, a co-collaborator of mine um, named Rachel Sericio. And they had just graduated like I did and had moved from Florida up to Philadelphia and was like, and is really hungry and was, was then too, and very passionate and very talented. And anytime that like we would have a rehearsal with our actors and just be creating work together about race, about like taking people's stories. So ultimately what this project was, was Rachel and I conducted interviews and in affinity groups of like students and faculty members and staff on campus and talked about racism just very candidly. And we ended up using the, those transcripts in those interviews and dramatized them with our actors and sort of like knitted a, mer- a narrative together that was like very candid and raw. And so I would say like the first rehearsal after like writing down or finishing the transcripts and this going through everything that everyone said verbatim in the actors' mouths and bodies and sort of like moving with those words. I really felt like I was like on top of my game. Like this is the kind of art I want to be creating. And the fact that like I as a producer brought all of these people together in a room and we're doing this, it, it gave me a lot of hope and it gave me a lot of like, it. yeah, it, it just brought me I'm getting emotional just thinking about it, you know? So I think that was like that whole project. I've learned so much and I love all of those collaborators so dearly. And we still talk today in our various different ways. And the cool thing is too, when you produce a show, your artists are still artists and they're still gonna be doing projects outside of you. So you can follow (laughs) your artists. And if you're lucky enough, you become friends with them. And then, oh my God, you're friends with someone that you thought was really cool and hired based (laughs) off of some like, what ends up being like very superficial shit. But 
yeah, that I think White Feather Project was in that rehearsal was really, really, really great for me. Yeah, a lot of that really resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so mm-hmm. awesome. Um, if you produced again in the near future, if you were going to produce like a reading or a staged reading of some sort, what would be your non-negotiables? Like the things I need most for this to mm-hmm. be successful for me. Mm-hmm. I would need definitely people of color and definitely black people specifically involved in like all aspects of production. Um, sort of my mission statement now is like, how do we de- decolonize our stories and ourselves in the stories that we see and we tell and we bring money to in theater? And so um, I would need a POC-led or um, integrated sort of process. Um, I would also need uh, collaborators that knew why that was happening and like understood holistically uh, why that was happening and and not just like enough to be like yes nod we approve we're gonna we're gonna like just let this happen but people that are like actively pushing against like the cis white heteronormative patriarchy yeah. that theater is built on um, and shoebox and Ryan and Kelly and Kevin and Joe Vito and like all of my all of the collaborators that are attached to shoebox Taylor Polly like we are that's a huge part of what we've evolved into as a company is like how do we support marginalized voices um and not just as it pertains to race but all the other identifiers that people have and live with um so for me black driven poc driven process um i would love for there to be an audience i mean i know that's like so 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 uh specific but I think I need to know who my audience is and the beauty of like being a playwright is like you can tailor your work to your audiences um and as a producer that's very important too um I would need yeah just people of color and audience and money (laughs) unfortunately uh yeah I'm trying to think of like a specific project that I could be doing that I could not speak so vaguely about this like, oh. in the abstract. No, but um, sort of what I'm wondering are mm-hmm. like what the benefits are of readings and like why we care. Yeah. Um, and if like other yeah. young artists were listening, like this is something I could be thinking about. This is something yeah. that could raise to the top for me and I can. Like I can be like, this mm-hmm. is my ride or die and I'm allowed to say that because I'm making this art. So totally like vagueness, meh. <laughs> you were being really specific, I feel like. Thank you. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, like, think about what you want to see and what you feel has been missing, and then don't be afraid to fill that lack. That is so important. And even as an actor, I, I feel like actors are, like, the salt of the earth, and sometimes... <laughs> We like we are at the bottom of the totem pole a yeah. lot in theater, yeah. unless you are literally Denzel Washington, and people are just throwing money at whatever you're in. But even as an actor, like you're allowed to have a mission statement. You're allowed to be like, this is this feels fucked up. I don't have to keep. Oh, my curse. This yeah. feels bad. You, yeah. I don't have to like go to this audition. I don't have to accept this role. Um, I've turned down callbacks for things, but I realize 
that I was like the only person of color called back for like a specific track that was like a subservient track. Like this happened twice. It happened in the same year. Like you're allowed to say no and you're allowed to go, I want to be a part of this because this speaks to me and my humanity. And I can always be doing work like this. And no, I'm not going to take this part because you think that you have some power over me because I'm X, Y, and Z, because it's so hard to get work as an actor. Because I need to pay rent. Because I need to pay rent. Right, <laughs> like, right. That's the thing, because I need health insurance. Thing. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah. And it also goes the other way of like, you're giving me a, a $200 stipend for eight, uh, four months of work. Yeah. I, how, how can I... How can I do that? Um, and, you know, I'm not going to lie, like, Shoebox is in that situation. And luckily, we were able to pay our artists a little bit more now because we're like, oh, my God, like, producing could be, like, development and fundraising. And mm -hmm. wait, and you're good at writing grants? Why don't you do that now that you're not juggling seven things at once trying to participate in our production? Like, you're allowed to say no. And, and you're allowed to want more from the yes. industry and as a producer you have the power to do that to give people more i love that like double double underline values and boundaries that was just mm -hmm. all so on point which brings us to the not a harder part of almost like the sad boy part of producing which is money how did you did you yeah. and shoebox collective do grant writing for the white feather project or did you do like fundraising or did you just go super super low budget so for white feather project this was before i was a part of the collective mm -hmm. um, i was yeah, in yeah, my senior yeah. year of college and as part of my grant for sinus i said i was going to mount it at the shoebox short theater festival which was a little premature because the application hadn't even gone up yet for that festival um and so i was like oh this project's gonna be great they're gonna say yes either way and I got really lucky and they gave us a slot. And so I was able to take the money from that grant to produce it in that festival. But then when I became a member of the collective or when they said, hey, we want to do Medusa play. Um, luckily, Shoebox is in a very, very unique position where we're a resident company of Venice Island Performing Arts Center, which is a park, Philly Parks and Rec um, building and recreation center. Cool. So we technically get like our board of directors is technically the like Philly Parks and Rec, and we, okay. we're getting um, a, a very um, specific board this coming year, which we're a little bit nervous about because delegation of funds, you know, people are nervous about money in theater, so our situation can change overnight. But um, a lot of our money is from Philly Parks and Rec, if not if not all of it, and it's not a lot. It's not a lot, but it's a lot more than what a lot of what you need, what people are operating with as producers in the city to produce really great art. Um, like art can be done on very small budget, but we're lucky that we have the cushion of um, Philly Parks and Rec. But since our situation is changing this year, we're getting more into the fundraising and for um, and, and, and grant writing. So we've been writing grants. We just submitted a couple of really big grants that we hope that we get. Um, we're going to be doing our first crowdsourcing campaign soon. We have a couple of very generous donors um, that are going to be um, helping us out. And so we're really like putting on our big boy pants and trying to be sustainable um, as a theater company. The Shoebox really just started as like a bunch of artists who were tired of being abused by the industry 
it just wanted to like make work and it didn't even matter who saw it it didn't matter like how many people showed up at all it just what mattered was just like the art of theater and the and the community that theater brings to people and our biggest event every year is the Shibak Shore Theater Fest and we bring over a hundred artists into Venice Island Performing Arts Center which is this beautiful fully fortified facility and we even waive the the admission fee for the festival sometimes depending on how much money the artist has or doesn't have so like we give artists this huge facility a slot to like put up whatever they want and unfortunately the festival's canceled this year but we're moving it and we're giving those artists that would have been in the festival this year priority slots next year this interview was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic so it's shoebox is really we started really small and we've been growing every year substantially and the Medusa play really like people in the theater community were like, wait, who's out there in Maniunk? Maniunk is a neighborhood on the edge of Philadelphia. And so we're kind of like, oh, wait, it's us. What are we going to do now? Uh, so the way that we've been getting money now is still resting on Parks and Rec, doing grants, donors, and, um, and sometimes we even like you know, if we need to buy chalk for a project, we'll buy chalk. It, it's just, unfortunately, sometimes what you have to do. It's tricky. You, like, pay money up front sometimes. Or um, you buy pizza, like you yeah. mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Or do art exchanges, too. Like, I've, like, self-produced a few things outside of Shoebox. And I have friends that are, like, graphic designers and visual artists. And it's like, oh, I need a logo for this thing. Like, the first Medusa Play logo, I paid an artist that I love, uh, Cheyenne Kemp, to draw the illustration of the Medusa head, but it was way under what I could pay her, and so we did some sort of like artistic trade on top of the, the reduced price. So don't be afraid to ask your friends who are also artists who have skills that you need to uh, to trade if they're able to do it. And unfortunately, like this is how the system perpetuates itself. It's like, oh, we should all be able to like say what our fees are and get paid. I haven't found any better way of doing that. If I'm in a really tough spot, I'll ask for a trade and then also pay something. But if I can afford it, hell yeah, I'm gonna pay my friends full fee. I'm, I'm definitely gonna do that. And then tip if I can, yeah. Like we lift up the folks around us, hoping that this art that we want to make, which I feel like is the benefit of producing, goes somewhere enough that we can then be like, this is my friend. They deserve X rates. Yeah. Social media is a huge thing too. Like sharing your friend's work, liking your friend's work. Like that that goes miles. That goes miles sometimes in our field. Of like even just liking an Instagram picture could like, you know, alert the next person who's like, ooh, they've got 20 likes on this picture of them making toast <laughs> and talking about how they're writing a play. That's 20 people who support this playwright. Like, you know. Yeah, I'm being ridiculous, but no, this is how but I think, yes, like, it's big it's wigs. Just networking. <laughs> like, We're yeah. networking. Yeah. So stupid. Toast. <laughs> I too eat toast. What a relatable <laughs> Is there anything else you would like to add about the benefits of producing readings in general or just in terms of speaking to other like younger and or emerging artists ambiguous Mm -hmm. age not like targeted age like through the 30s as we all embark on this 
Yeah. I don't even know what emerging means anymore. Yeah. I know people that are in their 40s that have been working in the city for years who are still labeled as emerging. It's a, it's a weird word because I, I think it's a word that's used by like a lot of about the people with more power to like, you know, put you in a box. And I think that that's what really what I want to say at the end is like, just because you're young or emerging does not mean that you can't have boundaries. You can't have a mission statement. You can't, you know, be a full human and also an artist. Um, yeah, don't let people walk over you. And, and I know that sometimes, like I'm coming from a place of privilege saying this, um, even, you know, as like a trans black person. I went to school, I went to college. I was able to do those unpaid internships for a lot of my career. You know, I had parents who supported me and told me that I was beautiful and, and good and strong and I could write and my voice mattered like very young. And there are a thousand things that, you know, go into like why I'm in the position that I'm in right now to like feel empowered in saying this. And I'm not always empowered in saying like, stand by your, your values because I'm human and there's cracks and flaws and complications to everything. But like, really the point is that like, like art is, is the pulse of like humanity. And I think we've forgotten a lot with like art making that there are, are humans that are attached to the art that deserve just as much respect as the art does. And like art should be challenging. That's sort of my mission statement. And so it would behoove you to challenge the people that are telling you that like, no, I'm gonna give you scraps. No, I'm not gonna pay you. No, I'm not going to give you this role because I only see you as this certain type of character. Like that, that's bullshit, you know? Art is about pushing boundaries and I think you know, when we begin to produce our own work and empower ourselves and empower each other, like making communities of art makers that believe and feel and do the same things that you do are so important. Like finding your tribe as an artist and trusting and loving and sticking with them, I think is really important. Make the the stuff that you want to see, be the change that you want to see in the world. Whoever said that, Gandhi or Martin Luther King <laughs> quoting Gandhi. But it, I think that's so true. And like the more that we you know, sort of like supplicate ourselves to folks that don't really have our best interests in mind, unfortunately, or are too high up to see that, you know, once they were us, like mm -hmm. listening to podcasts like these, like trying to figure out what the next step was, like, it's okay to remind people and you absolutely should and like be for a minute. Um, so yeah, just that, just that. Thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, and <laughs> Yeah, this was, uh, this was great. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. That was Ange Bay. I am Brittany Brewer. This is No Small Parts. Thank you for listening. For more No Small Parts, visit our website at www.nosmallpartspodcast.com. <laughs>